You're not the only one feeling old these days. They came to me at Belmont a few weeks ago and said, Phil, because you're an old preacher, there's a young student who's a third-year math student at the university who's on the potential preacher's course. Would you take him around with you over the next few weeks and he can see how it's done or how it's not done, so perhaps. And uh, I took him to King Street in Tiverton a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching. And on the way there, I said to him, oh, I said, I got married at this chapel 30 years ago. And he was a bit silent. I said, what's wrong? He said, oh, he said, that was 10 years before I was born. So I thought, thanks very much indeed. He couldn't even say it's just before I was born, but it was 10 years before I was born. So I was feeling a bit old. Then the Wednesday afterwards, I got on the train to London and I thought, this is a good opportunity to prepare my sermon for when I go to Great Parks. And I opened my Bible to Matthew, and I did two and a half hours study on the way to London, because the train was late getting in. thought, great, that's it, I know what I'm going to say in the morning. Got back on the train in the evening, thought, great, Hebrews chapter 4, let's just check which verse is in. And I went into the email that I received on my phone, and I'd realized I'd gone to the wrong chapter in Matthew, and I'd spent two and a half hours preparing the wrong sermon. So there we are. So I was getting old, and I shouldn't rely on my memory. And I even forgot there wasn't communion this evening. So uh, we've got something this evening, perhaps a bit shorter than we would do otherwise. But Hebrews chapter 4. Um, Apart from getting up at 5.30 yesterday morning to tidy up before Val came back from Bath, I also got up at half past five to change a little bit of what we're going to say today. But uh, I hope the Lord will bless us, and uh, not necessarily easy words, but let's consider what they've got to say to us today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have heard the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, again, God set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David. As was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also works from his own work, also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their own example. Of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these verses. We pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts as to what your Spirit has to say to us this evening. Lord, that you would just write your word upon your heart. 
Lord, perhaps verses we don't always find necessarily easy to understand. But Lord, write them upon your heart. Let us meditate upon them. And most of all, Lord, as we take them away from here, may they just affect and touch our lives and draw us closer to yourself. Amen. Amen. Back at the end of September, as I mentioned to you this morning, we went on holiday to North Wales. And one of the things that we were determined to do was to walk up Snowdon. We'd been up on the train when the kids were younger, but they weren't with us on this holiday, so we had no excuse we had to walk. I was looking at the weather, hoping it was going to rain all week, and that would have been a fantastic excuse not to do so. But on the middle of the week, we had a beautiful day, and we decided this was it, so up we had to go to Snowdon. And I don't know if you've ever walked up the Lamberis path in Snowdon. They tell me there were six different paths up Snowdon, but we decided to go up the Lamberis one, mainly because there's a cafe halfway up, and if that's not a good reason for choosing that path, I don't know what is. But if you go, I don't know if you know, if you go out of Lamberis, there's a very steep hill as you go out of the town before you actually hit the mountain itself. And as I say, it was a beautiful, clear day, and we got to the top. And, you know, I've got a little bit older now, so I like to stop occasionally and enjoy the view. You know, I'm not saying I'm resting, just enjoying the view. And we stopped to take some photographs when I'd stopped shaking long enough to be able to hold the camera. And this is at the top there, just as you go up onto the mountain path. And it's beautiful. But as you look up, if you've ever been up that path, you'll know that you cannot see the summit of Snowdon from that position. And you know, as I was sat there thinking about this passage at half past five yesterday morning, thinking I was going to change my sermon, you know, it occurred to me, it's a bit like this, that God gave the Old Testament, the people there, the promise that he will give them a promised land, a place of rest. Where do we read Genesis chapter 12, verse 11? The promise was given to Abraham, who would be given a land that I will show you. But if you look at the life of Abraham, he was a pilgrim. He traveled all of his life. He saw the Negev. He said Ai and Bethel. And he brought his tent to Hebron. But he never stayed in the promised land until chapter 23. You find there that there is a whole chapter in the Bible about him buying a cave from a Hittite in order that he could bury Sarah. You see, as he looked up, that God had promised him a land of rest, but it wasn't something that he was going to achieve. And you know, when you press on up the hill... From that first place of rest, the road sort of up to the Snowdon starts to level out. And you think, hey, this is easy. Why was I worried about it? But I think it's what they call a bit of a false flat. Because if you go up to the next one, you see it gets a little bit steeper. And after we walked up the next bit, I had to stop and I had to admire the view again and say, thanks, Violet. Look at that. Isn't it wonderful? I think we ought to just stand for a couple of minutes and appreciate God's creation. Because it was very pretty and I need to get my breath back. But there it was. And you know, if you go through the Old Testament, and this is what the uh, writer was writing to the Hebrews, it's a little bit as though they've gone a bit further up, and the promise was given not only to Abraham, but it was also given as well to Moses, as he took the people out, the children of Israel, that they were going to go into the promised land. And what happened? Did they find that rest? No. They didn't get to the summit of it. They disobeyed, and we're going to come back to that point afterwards. And in fact, such was their disobedience that over the age of 18, only Caleb and Joshua, who left Egypt, entered into the promised land. It was a promise that was given to Moses. It was a promise to given to Joshua. But then as you press on up, as you've gone up past the uh, cafe and stopped for your cup of tea, you get to the next bit. If you put it up, I think there we are. I had to have a picture of myself and just to prove I've been up there, haven't I? You get to a nice bit and just before the next steep bit comes. 
And what happened? You see, the rest wasn't entered into by the children of Israel because of their disobedience, their lack of faith. And so it's a promise again that he needs to give to David as well. And a message that he needs to give to David. And eventually when you go up the next steep bit, which is very steep and a lot of screen, you get to the bit... And just to prove that my wife made it up Snowden, she didn't catch the train. Have you noticed something different about that photograph? The blue skies all the way up there. Just as you turn the corner, you get to the summit, and all of a sudden, the fog. Isn't it a good job we didn't go up there for the view? But you know, there is the summit coming to place. And it's a bit like this, you know, in the passage that we've had. It's that promise that we've given. There is this place of rest. It is something that we as individuals can achieve. We may not think it possible. My wife is amazed. In fact, she's so amazed, I think it's gone to her head, because she not only just wants to climb Snowden, but she's now planning that we're going to go up Ben Nevis and Scarfell Pike. Not in one weekend, I hasten to add. But it's unachievable. The Old Testament didn't do You see, what he's doing, he's writing to the Hebrew church who had an intimate Old Testament knowledge. And he's weaving this picture through and saying, look. There is this place of rest that you can achieve. It was promised your forefathers, but because of their lack of faith, they never entered into that rest. But it is something which you can achieve. And he takes that illustration and he explains it to them and says, don't turn back. Don't go back to your Jewish rituals and your food rules and your special day. Because God has promised you this place of rest. It is something which you can achieve. Now, I don't know what you think of when you have the word rest mentioned to you. You know, for some of us, it's something which at the end of the day is sort of, you know, a relaxation. It's sort of a thing of inactivity. I suppose some of us at a certain age remember this little Mars strap line, doesn't it? A Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. Well, my theory was if one helps you work, rest and play, three or four would help me work really well, rest and play. I don't know whether some people know that. That was actually written by Murray Walker, the Radio One, uh, the Formula One commentator, wrote that strap line when he was in advertising before he went into Formula One Coventry. You know, but some of us think that rest is something which, at the end of the day, is inactivity. But if you look into the Bible, rest is something different than that. And if you put up the next slide, you see, because rest is something which is part of God's character, part of his nature, and part of his work. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, about creation, by the seventh day when God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from his work. It's not that God was tired by creating the world, because we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, he will not grow tired or weary. And for sometimes for us, rest is a thing of weariness. And the older they get, the more I find if I'm out doing a bit of gardening or something else, that, you know, we need to admire the view or stop and have a bit more rest. It's a rest that comes because of weariness. But it's also not a rest that comes of inactivity. John 5, verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. He's planning, he's interceding, and he's saving. And yet God has offered us the rest that he enjoys. What is the rest? It's the work of a completed creation, the work of a completed salvation. And I think for Christians this evening, there are three things that I just quickly want to apply it to. How can we know rest as a Christian? Well, the first thing is that we can know rest, you go back one slide, is that we can know rest when we come to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. I wonder how many people, if you said to them, you have to do X, Y, and Z to earn salvation, they'd be doing it. 
One of the mountains that I don't think I'll be walking up is we saw it the other day on Songs of Praise. I don't know if you see Songs of Praise, but it's the highest mountain in Ireland. And apparently it's a thing that in order to try and sort of achieve, a, I don't know, some sort of better state, you have to walk up it barefooted. Now, I don't know why people were doing it, but people were doing it. And it was typical Irish weather. It was windy and rainy, and they were going up barefooted. And clearly this guy, every step he took, and his girlfriend was with him. I don't know who forced who to do it. But, you know, they would just looked as though they were in pain, as though it was like some sort of, you know, improvement that they would please God by their sort of sacrifice. You know, and sometimes people say, oh, what do I have to do to get this salvation? And you have to say to them, you don't have to do anything at all. Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. If I could sing, I'd sing you that lovely verse from Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. You see, verse 10 that we read there together, it says, anyone who enters God to rest also rests from his own work. That we don't need to bring our works to Jesus Christ. We really need to come to accept his grace and his forgiveness and what he did upon the cross at Calvary. If you put up the next slide, one of the reasons I went to this meeting in London was it was a committee meeting. And I love this committee meeting because in the morning we have people come who we give grants to and report on the work. And this is a guy who came and spoke to us called Steve. Steve works for uh, Christianity Explored. Uh, and uh, the prison fellowship. And he was telling us about his history. He went to school. He didn't work very hard. He left with no qualifications. He was frustrated. He was a troubled child. He got into drink and he got into drugs. He then got into dealing drugs. And in the late 1990s, he was sentenced to four years in Shrewsbury Prison. And whilst he was in Shrewsbury Prison in 1998, somebody came to preach the gospel. And he reckoned it was probably less boring going to church than it was having to stay in his cell. He didn't come with the highest motive to go to church, was it? It was less boring than being banged away in his cell. And as he said, I went to that meeting in 1998. I heard the man preach. And I realized that here was a God who loved me and would give me rest in my life. Give me fulfillment and give me a purpose. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And when he came out of prison with no O-levels, no qualifications whatsoever, or GCSEs, whatever they call them these days, whether grades eight or whatever, he worked hard. And he's been to uh, Swansea University and got a 2 one in sociology, and he's now working for Christianity Explored. And do you know what his job is? He takes the gospel back into prisons. And they've produced Christianity Explored, a prison edition. They call it the Prisoner's Journey. And he was saying that in this year, 2017, and they've linked up with America, that over 160,000 prisoners are going to do the Christianity Explored course. He said he realized when I became a Christian, that at the end of the day, that Jesus Christ had done it all for me. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to reform. I didn't have to try and make myself better and go out and turn a new leaf and try and go straight. But Jesus Christ had done it all for me. John Newton, the famous hymn writer and slave trader, said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. And isn't that fantastic? That as Christians, we can enter God's rest. 
Rico Tice, who was at that meeting as well that I went to, talked about the three R's of the gospel. I've mentioned it before. You know when you're at school, the three R's were reading, writing, and arithmetic. Spelling wasn't one of the three R's, as you could tell, could you? Well, he talks about the three R's of the gospel being rebellion, wrath, and rescue. And his spelling's not as good as it was at school. I always think to him there ought to be a fourth R as well. There ought to be the R of repentance. See, because when we come to Jesus Christ and we say, Lord, that nothing that we could do would ever satisfy the demands of the Lord, but all we need to do is to come and to accept what he has done, that we can enter into that rest that he gives us. Augustine of Hippo said this, There was made for us for thyself, and the heart that resteth never until it finds rest in thee. And that's, you know, as Christians, the first rest that we can enter into. But there's also another rest as well that we need to have in our lives. If you put up the next slide as well, it is the overcomer's present rest in victory. Verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Matthew eleven twenty nine. take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I know what you thought when you became a Christian, what life would be like. Did you think it would be fantastic and sweetness and light and nothing would ever go wrong again with you? See, being a Christian doesn't prevent us from the cares and the concerns of this world. But there is a peace that can come, a rest that can come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put up the next one. I don't know whether you used to sing this lovely old hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the fullness of of thy loving heart, thou hast bids me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul, for by thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. And so it goes on. We won't read all of it. What happened to the children of Israel? Well, do you know, the writer here has to remind them that although they trusted in the Lord to save them from Egypt and Pharaoh's power, that when he called them to get up and go, to take the lamb, to sacrifice it, and put the blood on the doorpost upon the lintel, they trusted in him. And Pharaoh said, get out. They took gold and jewelry with them. That's how the Lord blessed them. And when they got out into the desert, what happened? They trusted God for their salvation from the Egyptians, but their faith wasn't strong enough to take them. That when he gave them that second command to go in and take the land, what happened? There would be giants there, they came back and said. I'm not sure that we can do it. Only two of them had the faith of those spies to say that. And they didn't feel that they could trust God to live their lives. And you know, I think a lot of us don't have peace and rest in our lives because although we trust God for salvation, we find it difficult to trust him day by day. I'm not quite sure why they found it difficult to trust the Lord day by day because the Lord certainly blessed them. What happened when they went out into the wilderness? Well, first of all, they had the best sat-nav you could ever have because I don't know what my sat-nav does, but it keeps on telling me to do a U-turn because I've gone wrong. But they had a sat-nav which was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Imagine that having as a sat-nav. I'm not sure my RAC would be too happy or my insurance company if I had a pillar of fire by my car. But he led them. And not only did he lead them, but he fed them as well. And they didn't even have to work for it. There was manna that was provided. There was quail that was provided. And they also had wonderful water. What happened? He smote the rock and out came the water. And even better than that, their clothes didn't wear out and their shoes didn't wear out. 
God, they wouldn't have done much for they for the local shops, did they? It all lasted. God provided for them, and yet all of that provision that God gave them, they were never at rest in their relationship with him. They wandered around in the desert. They grumbled. My wife has an expression sometimes for me, because, you know, I'm getting a bit of a grumpy old man sometimes. And she says, Phil, you've been such an Israelite. And I know exactly what she means. <laughs> we grumble. Nothing's quite right. Why do I have my knees hurt so much? And where have I put my glasses? And why aren't kids all like they used to be? And show respect to their elders and all that. You know, they had something that they could trust the Lord for, and yet they chose to wander around. And they didn't know the peace. And they didn't know the rest that the Lord could bring them. I wonder whether we're like that in our lives. Verse 2, I think, is tremendously sad. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Just saying to him earlier on, I'm going skiing with Kevin and I'm not a great flyer. I'm going to be holding his hand on that plane. In fact, when we went to Twickenham yesterday, I went with one of my friends, Pete, and I went with Pete when we went to, uh, to Paris a few years ago to watch England play over in Paris. My friend Pete's an engineer. He understands all about flight and mechanics and everything else. I tell you, when we sat in that departure lounge, I was sweating like I don't know what. My mouth was dry, but my hands were sweating. Pete was as cool as a cucumber. And then they called our flight, and I was thinking, I'm not sure I want to go, I'm not sure I want to go. And Pete said, oh, don't we, you'll be fine. And even though I bought a copy of the Daily Telegraph, as we got onto the plane, they were handing out free newspapers, and I took another copy of the Daily Telegraph from the stewardess. I was that nervous. And as we sat down there, I was sort of like flicking my tray up and down, just trying to occupy my mind. And Pete was saying, what's wrong? I said, Pete, I'm not sure he's going to get off the ground. It's got me inside it. Does he know how much I weigh? You know, it's a... And he said, don't worry about it. You see those little flaps, because we're swept by the window. He said, when we go along, he said, we'll hit the point, and they just turn the flaps, and up they go. He could explain it all. But I sat there, and I was sweaty, and I tell you what, I'm not sure I ate anything or drank anything or relaxed until we landed in Charles de Gaulle Airport, and I got off. You see, Pete had expressed faith in that plane. He had absolutely no doubts and every confidence that it would get there. I'd expressed faith in that plane. Why? I had my doubts, I had my fears, thought my wife could have been an early widow or something else of that nature. But I expressed faith by the fact that I didn't sit there in that departure lounge and say, Pete, I hear what you say, I believe the plane can do it, God bless all those who are going over to Paris to watch the rugby, let's hope we beat those French this afternoon. No! I walked across that tarmac, up the steps, onto the plane and sat down. And for some of us, you know, we'll have no doubts, no problems at all, and God bless you if you're like that. But, you know, sometimes as I follow the Christian path, I have my doubts and I have my fears. And I'm just like those children of Israel. Lord, are you really going to keep me? I know you saved me. But is what you want for my life really the best way? Is that the way that I'm going to enter rest? And God takes me by the hand and says, don't worry. Follow me. Live a life that's honoring to me. And I will give you rest. I will never let you down. I will never disappoint you. And how do we live that life of rest? Well, I don't think it's an accident that verse 12 is in here. Perhaps at first reading, it seems out of place. But you know, I think one of the ways that we know that we have living a life of peace is through the word of God. 
And I'm amazed at the number of times I read things in Scripture that meant nothing to me when I read them, I don't know how many times before, but when suddenly something crops up and just the right Scripture seems to appear in my Bible reading in the morning. I think, wow, Lord, how do you do it? I don't know why I'm surprised, because it happens time and time again. Sometimes the Bible is uncomfortable reading. I don't want to read it. I want to shut it and say, go away. I don't want to read it anymore. But God speaks through his word to give us that comfort. One of my friends, Graham Pitts, died earlier this year of cancer, age 62. And when I went to visit him not long before he died, I thought it would be a difficult experience. But I tell you what, it was so uplifting. So peaceful was his experience that he was going to be with his Lord. And he could share with me the comfort that he'd known in God's word. Do you know, I think if I've been in this situation, I'm even running around like a headless chicken. And he smiled at me and said, Phil, he said, I'm going to get to heaven before you. Such was his confidence. We miss him. Of course we do. That's what the Bible tells us we will do. Jesus missed his friend Lazarus and he cried. Another shame in that. But he knew that peace in his life. A peace where he could put his faith and his hope and his confidence in the Lord. That's not what the children of Israel knew. And the last few times almost gone. There's also a future arrest that's going to come as well. Revelation 14, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. See, that's in contrary to what Isaiah 57, 21 says, there is no peace, there is no rest for the wicked. But when we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we know that we can truly rest in peace. When I was up in London at this meeting, talking to one of my friends, and he was recanting the, well, we're talking about politics over lunch, that fabulous day on May the 4th, 1979. Well, some people think it was fabulous, some people think it was disaster for the country. But we elected our first woman prime minister. And he decided he would take his two kids, because he had a day off when he was working in London, to Buckingham Palace to see Margaret Thatcher arrive in her big limousine to go and meet the Queen to be asked to form the new government. And they got there nice and early and they stood on the rails and they waited and Margaret Thatcher turned up and everybody cheered. Whether they were cheering 10 years later or not is another story. But everybody cheered and they waited and out she came from meeting the Queen and everybody cheered and off she went. And as the crowd started to disappear, my friend thought he'd better, because the bus is a bit slow in London, aren't they? He'd better take his two boys home for tea. And as he turned to go away, he heard this voice saying, don't leave. The best is coming. And he looked around and he couldn't see who had said it. And as he turned to leave to go home again, he heard the voice say, Don't leave. The best is coming. And as he looked around, he saw that one of the policemen on duty there had said out the side of his mouth, Don't move. The best is coming. And he said, I looked at the policeman and said, What do you mean? And the policeman said, Can't tell you. But don't go. The best is coming. So he thought, oh, no, well, let's wait. It won't hurt just to give it five or ten minutes, let the crowds disperse. And after they waited for ten minutes, you know what happened? The Queen came out of Buckingham Palace to come and meet some of the crowds that were waiting. And it was the day that he and his two boys still remember. It's not the day that we had a first woman prime minister, but the day they met the Queen. Don't go. Don't worry. The best is coming. And you know, that is true for us as Christians as well. The best is yet 
to come. For one day we're going to enter into our rest. One day we're going to go to be with him. I don't know if you wonder what heaven's going to be like. Oh, it's going to be an amazing place, isn't it? A place of rest, a place of joy with prayerlessness forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11. Revelation 21, no mourning or crying, no more death or pain. Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer any curse. 1 Corinthians 13, a place of love. Revelation 22, verse 3, a place of worship. I don't really care less about all of those. But one thing I do care about is where the Lord is. I love that little passage in John 14. Do you know I go to quite a few funerals as a solicitor. And some of the messages I hear at funerals are absolute tripe. And sometimes I want to stand up and say, excuse me, I think you got that wrong. You know, there's one vicar there. I've heard the same sermon about four times. And one of the stories it always tells at funerals is the fact that, oh, it's a bit like when I was an evacuee on the war. My parents put me on the train in London. And when I got down to Exeter, there was a nice family to meet me and to greet me. And that's what it's like going to heaven. And I say, Rubbish! Because what does John 14 says? We have somebody who's gone on before to prepare a place for us. A place of rest. And not only has he gone to prepare a place, but it says he's going to come back and take us. I was asked a question recently about a man, Tom, I knew who died. And someone said to me, knowing he lived alone, was he by himself when he died? Do you know what I said? No. Because a Christian is never by himself when he dies. Because God came to take him to that place of rest and what's that lovely assurance that we have in john 14 what's that lovely assurance that jesus could give to the dying thief upon the cross today you will be in paradise no he said today you will be with me what's that lovely phrase in john 14 that he's going to take us to be with himself in that place of perfect rest Oh, you know that story, that parable that Jesus told about the rich man and the pauper who was at the gates in Luke's gospel. And they could see there the torment that was in that rich man's voice. As he looked up into heaven and saw what a wonderful place of quiet rest that was. That's what waits us as Christians. There's the rest of salvation There's the rest that we need to enter into, to work towards in our lives. Sounds a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? And if you're not quite sure what an oxymoron is, it's fun run. You know, two words that conflict. We need to work to find rest in our Christian life. But we are sure that one day there is a place of perfect rest when we go to be with our Savior forever. Isn't that a wonderful thing the Lord has promised us? A place of perfect rest. Amen.